welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Today we have a special two-segment episode of the Data Show. The first segment is a conversation between myself and Professor Daphne Shahath of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She's one of the foremost experts in the use of AI and data science to overcome information overload. The second segment is a conversation between Jen Webb, host of the O'Reilly Radar podcast, and Professor Sam Wang, professor of neuroscience and molecular biology at Princeton University and co-founder of the Princeton Election Consortium. I hope you enjoy this special edition of The Data Show. So Daphna, you are now a faculty member at uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem in uh, what department? Computer Science and Engineering. Cool. So uh, were you always focused on machine learning, even as an undergrad? <laughs> no, it's actually funny. My, my undergrad was in math and computer science, and I wasn't even planning on, you know, doing a master's or let alone a PhD, right? I just thought I'd graduate and get a job. Uh, but my favorite undergrad class in AI, sorry, in undergrad was AI. And uh, the professor there, who's uh, Shai Bushinsky, one of the people behind Deep Junior, you know, the thing that played against Kasparov, he actually recommended that I go do a master's in AI, and uh, which is what I did at Urbana-Champagne. And I like to think about what I did as, you know, right now I call it good old-fashioned AI, no machine learning, no data mining whatsoever, just encoding the universe in logic and running inference. Um, but then my advisor, you know, I had this nice application of a robot going around, flipping light switches, opening doors, trying to understand what's going on. And my advisor asked me to turn it into a DARPA grant, where there's like tanks and enemy units and all this stuff. And then I realized that nothing I did, like in logic, would be able to work if the enemy has more than eight tanks and they're completely deterministic. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I switched to CMU to Carnegie Mellon to work on much larger and much noisier data. And I really got into the whole data mining, machine learning, data science, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but no, that wasn't the plan. As I looked at your uh, LinkedIn profile, I noticed you also worked in a security company. <laughs> oh boy, that was a while ago. Yeah, SafeEnd. Um, so SafeEnd were dealing with what they call a endpoint data protection. And the idea was that it's really, really easy for somebody to step into your office and plug into your computer some, I don't know, memory stick or a smartphone or something like this, or just listen to your Wi-Fi and basically walk away with super sensitive data. Uh, so my job was actually to come up with proofs of concept of what would the bad guys do. I think my favorite example is this memory stick that you plug into your computer and it silently copies your entire document folder over. Yeah, but this was ages ago. So you, uh, so you also worked on uh, robotics, huh? I wouldn't call it robotics, as in I've never actually touched a robot during those things. But uh, I did the software part. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, which actually is. Uh... Yeah, I know. I know several people who are working on that now, and it seems like that. You know, uh, so what they're doing is uh, they're taking ex existing robots and and uh, imbuing them with AI, make them mm -hmm. better. Um, yes. So that's an important co component, actually, of uh, robotics. Is basically the AI system that powers it. Oh, totally. I was once um, at a robotics talk, and they showed us what it looks like through the eyes of the robot. And it's basically one big mess. So you definitely need some AI behind the curtains to understand what's going on there. So now, uh, most recently, I characterized what your uh, recent work has been around uh, helping uh, people overcome information overload. And uh, you have this kind of framework called uh, information cartography and specifically mm -hmm. me Metro Maps. 
But uh, let me take a step back. So, um, I, you know, let's say I have a pile of documents and structured text. So in, in uh, the default thing that I would do then is what? I would cluster the documents, apply some kind of topic model to make, mm -hmm. sense, to make sense of it. And of course, uh, the the one thing that most many people will do, which I hate actually, is do the tag cloud, <laughs> the, the word cloud, right? So, so basically, so these are the existing kind of default things that someone can do. So then, yeah. uh, so what inspired you to to go beyond uh, kind of these default uh, techniques? Oh, so, so the story behind the metro apps and information cartography is um, I was walking down the Carnegie Mellon corridors. And I thought of this set of seven posters called issue maps. I don't know if you've seen them before. Oh, yeah, I've, uh, seen, I've, seen it, uh, I've seen it from your presentation. Oh, awesome. Uh, so it was called uh, Can Computers Think? And it was about the great AI debate about whether computers can think. And it was so beautiful. Okay, every, It was a graph, basically, where every node was an argument like machines can't have emotions. And they had edges like, you know, this argument is supported by that argument, which is disputed by the other person. And I was just sitting there for like an hour, I think, and read through the whole thing. And finally, everything clicked in my brain. Everything made sense. So I started jumping up and down like, OK, great. So how did they make those things? Exactly. And That's I my question. <laughs> exactly. So I don't remember, like 20 or 40 many years, and they did everything manually. And of course, no way to change it or update it when new stuff comes in. So like, OK, great. So can we make something like this just automatically, you know, for any query we have in mind? And this is kind of how MetroMap started. So ba basically, then uh, describe a MetroMap. So there's one example that uh, you and your collaborate collaborators did, which is, for example, you guys did a uh, map of uh, reinforcement learning, right? So oh, we did a whole bunch of maps. So I start out with all the papers that what mention information uh, reinforcement learning. So what's the starting point? Okay, so your input is a set of articles, and you can think about them as a result of a query, or I don't know, you have a magic voodoo ball that gives you some input articles that you want to kind of summarize and organize. And uh, the output looks like kind of like a subway map, okay, like a metro map, where each line is a coherent storyline, and different lines focus on different aspects, and they can intersect and overlap. So uh, you know, probably instead of reinforcement learning, let me talk about news because it's slightly right. more accessible. Right, right. So um, one of my favorite examples is the Dutch crisis in Europe, where you have one line about what Germany was doing, and one line about the strikes and uh, riots in Greece, and another line about the IMF. And again, you're supposed to look at this and kind of get that those are the major storylines, and this is how everything is connected. And we did do this for, uh, like you said, news stories and scientific papers and legal documents, and finally, just for the fun of it, I ran it on the Lord of the Rings, just you know, to see if I can extract <laughs> some structure from it. So then yeah. uh, let's take an article, let's say it's from the New York Times, right? So on the debt crisis. And mm -hmm. inside this article, the first part of the article talks about what Germany did. The second part talks about riots in Greece. So does mm -hmm. the algorithm, is the algorithm able to place the article in both parts of the map? Or how does it work? Yeah, actually, that's pretty much exactly what happens. I mean, you, first of all, start by uh, creating storylines. And, you know, there's going to be one about Germany and one about the strikes. And then, uh, okay, so the really hard part behind map was kind of crafting the objective, right? Because, you know, coming up with a map, I mean, you don't really know what you're looking for, right? If I show you a map, then you know it's good, but everything is very intuitive. So we had to define some properties that would make a map better, like connectivity, meaning that, 
if two lines are related, then the map should kind of show them intersecting. And this is where I have a small component that kind of tries to, once you have those storylines, try to make them connect, to try to find papers that would be a good intersection point. But it's kind of hard to explain this without, you know, drawing yeah, yeah. stuff so on the then, board. Uh, so then uh, the other thing I would imagine is, let's say, for the debt crisis, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you know that you've covered all the essential topics? Oh, yeah. So the other property that we had there was coverage. And it meant that we should indeed cover things that are important to the user and diverse. So we actually, in the case of news, we define the items that we want to cover as words. So, you know, this article is about Greece, this article is about Miracle. And uh, we would have some submodular function that basically said, okay, you've had enough articles about this concept, Try time to move on to the next interesting thing, right? Because otherwise, there's plenty of lines about the Greek debt crisis, and most of them are just not important enough. Like what one of the most coherent lines was, um, think about how the markets in Asia were affected, which is nice. But when you have a budget of five lines, that's not the main thing that's going on. So, oh, by the way, and this was a perfect place to plug in personalization. So people could actually tell us, you know, I don't care about Portugal or, oh, I think Greece is super important. And then we'd kind of recompute what the map should cover. So in many ways, actually, this is a way for a person uh, to learn about a, a topic quickly, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. We actually had at some point, you know, kind of a, maps are pretty much just assume you don't know anything about a story, but we're talking a little bit about what to do if you already know something, how to, as a part of, suppose, the scientific papers, how about we sub, uh, supply the map with your bib uh, file, all the papers that you already read, and then we'll only show you, like, stuff that you're not familiar with. But yeah. Uh, um, so then, uh, uh, how would you describe this to someone who wants to actually use it at this point? So how how would they go about building their own metro map? Is there is there like a sample source code program somewhere that they can go ahead and modify? Okay. So first of all, there is quite a few papers on uh, my webpage and my lab's webpage. Um, spelling out URLs is probably stupid, so I suspect you're just going to. Put this, uh, yeah, I will, I will right? add it. Yeah, I will add it to the uh, post accompanying this episode. And uh, I had a student at Stanford who was supposed to turn this into an open source package and a live website, but halfway through he was snatched by a startup, which <laughs> happens a lot around Stanford, I think. Yeah. Uh, so now I do have a demo outside, and I do have uh, an accompanying GitHub, but it's kind of quarter baked, and I really, really need to find another student to, you know, get this done. Kind of problematic because it's not a research project anymore; it's just an implementation thing. But I think I'm going to find a master's student or something to finish it. So, uh, how 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 well does it scale in terms of uh, oh. uh, size size of a corpus? Yes, so that's actually the fun part because a lot of the work is done at the pre-processing stage, and the algorithms after this are mostly easy to parallelize. So at Stanford, I actually had a great team of students that took kind of my clunky prototype for my PhD, you know, that was like a MATLAB prototype talking to a Python prototype, and it took like 11 minutes and 17,000 articles. And then they rewrote everything in parallel, and now it's something like 30 seconds on hundreds of thousands of articles, and I suspect it can get much faster. And the output being, here are are the articles that go on this uh, part of the map, and here are the articles that go on this other part of the map. And then do you just basically manually lay out the map? Oh, so we had an HCI student to do the layout. So x-axis is a timeline. It's chronological. Okay. And I actually tried a whole bunch of things for y-axis. And the only thing that made sense is just 
make it as not messy as possible. Right. So y-axis right. doesn't mean anything right now. So how would you describe this Daphna in the context of like the other existing techniques that I described, like clustering or topic models? How would you how would you compare uh, uh, metro maps? I think the biggest difference is in the notion of paths in the metro maps, right? All of the other things say that end up in a graph. The edges are locally. If how you got from you know one node to another doesn't mean anything. And in Metronomes, there's this notion of coherence, of there's this whole path and it, it makes sense. Like how you got to this node matters. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, but clearly they're useful for other stuff, right? I mean, I wouldn't use, I would use Metronomes for what? A very tiny fraction of searches in the internet today. Like, you know, when you're actually trying to understand some some evolving story uh, and, you know, clustering and what you said earlier, word clouds are usually used for completely different purposes. You know, but on the other hand, so you, you kind of frame it in terms of search, but I kind mm-hmm. of, what I like about it is I can take a topic that I don't know much about, feed it documents, and then it will create a, uh, almost like a structured curriculum for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, it's funny you say it because I was, for the longest time, I was looking for an application to MetroMaps that doesn't have timestamps in it because there's nothing that really requires them. There just need to be some notion of uh, you need to read this before this. And I finally found something. It's a uh, textbooks. So you actually do make a curriculum for somebody to learn. So for people who are uh, eager to, to use this and don't want to wait for you to uh, implement uh, your existing source code, is there enough information in the papers? I think so. And if not, I mean, they're welcome to email. And by the way, are, are the, uh, would you characterize the algorithms as parallelizable? Would I characterize it? What? Uh, as uh, being easy to parallelize? Oh, yeah. Most of it is. I mean, most of it is even what's called uh, embarrassingly parallel, when you can work on separate things together and just, you know, glue them at the end. Perfect to all the listeners out there. I think this is one of the things that I've come across over the last few years that uh, not many people know about. But uh, when you see uh, some of the examples of uh, the maps that uh, Daphna and her collaborators have produced, you just go, wow, I wish I had access to a tool like this that I can apply to my own set of documents, right? Um, Thanks. And I think... Yeah. You're and right. I, I didn't mention my collaborators. So this is joint work with Carlos Gastrin and Eric Horvitz and Ural Escovich. So thanks. Yeah. And then I, I think actually uh, from what you describe, it might be something that uh, someone can take on and maybe implement in a popular framework mm-hmm. like Apache Spark. I would love to see it, actually. I got somebody from Google who asked me if they can play with it, but then they never got back to me. So yes. Please go and play. Then it would be in a framework that's already distributed, and boom, you you can apply it to massive corpuses. All right. So then, uh, so Metro Maps, I kind of frame it as a part of this larger uh, problem space around overcoming information overload. Uh, mm-hmm. Are there any other related techniques that uh, uh, we need to know about besides uh, what you and your collaborators have done around? Uh, this topic of information overload? Oh, plenty. Uh, I would usually just send people to read the papers. There's been like, you know, the older work on top, topic detection and tracking. Uh, Eric Shing had some nice papers recently. On what? Uh, what, what, did Eric, what did Eric write about? Exactly this, on how to extract timelines from uh, from news articles or things like this. So very similar, so uh, somewhat similar to what you're, you're doing, although you're not 
I mean, so in your case, if there's a timestamp of the article, you can extract a timeline, but that's not necessarily part of the metro map, right? No, but timelines in the same way that I mean it, like a timeline that breaking all those articles into multiple storylines. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's great. And then uh, uh, there's a group in Stanford that uh, does something related, but I, I guess not, uh, in the general area, I would say, around information extraction. So I'm talking about uh, Chris Ray and his group around, mm -hmm. deep, around Deep Dive, where they take uh, unstructured data and then they yeah. try to convert it into structured information. Yes, I actually started working with Chris on Deep Dive uh, on an application of this to some other project of mine, where I was trying to understand what things are used for, what's called affordances, you know, extracting things like uh, chairs are used for sitting and alarm clocks are used for waking up. And Deep Dive didn't quite fit what I needed at that point. But, you know, working with natural language text is something that I do all the time. So anything that would take away some of the pain is very much welcome. So speaking of which, so uh, what other things have you been up to? So if it's not natural language text. <laughs> <laughs> plenty, actually. Um, so it's funny, I recently had to give a talk at Ijikai, pretty much about the type of problems that, uh, that I've been working on recently. And um, I think I narrowed it down. It, it was nice. It kind of allowed me to think about everything I did recently. And the idea was that there's always this kind of battle for mankind's sense of uniqueness. You know how um, all those psychology articles always say uh, the human being is the only animal that does X. You know, like they were the only animal that has language skills until they saw that chimpanzees could do sign language or, uh, well, we're the only animals that can use tools until birds started using tools. So, so I think that, you know, originally this battle was waged against animals, but it's recently more and more against computers. So we keep on hearing those things like, you know, computers will never be able to play chess or to play Go, and we know how well that went for them. But my point is that even today, there are still those areas that are considered to be outside the reach of computer science, like computers will never be creative or will never have a sense of humor. And those areas, to me, they're the most interesting places to do research. Okay, so when somebody tells me that the computers can do something, like have a sense of humor, I usually immediately start thinking about how to do this, and in particular, what kind of data can be useful for me. Yeah, um, actually, the, uh, the, as you were uh, talking there, I, I'm reminded of all the things that some of the deep learning people have been doing around kind of, uh, you know, abstract paint, you know, using, using deep neural nets to generate kind of impressionistic artwork, mm -hmm. and even uh, compose music. So people mm -hmm. are trying to come up with music composition programs of some sort. But you actually uh, did something kind of uh, interesting at Strata New York when you talked a few years ago. You ran into the cartoon editor of the New Yorker, mm -hmm. Bob Manka. And so tell the story of how you ended up <laughs> collaborating with the cartoon editor of the New Yorker. Oh, sure. Well, first of all, that was pretty much thanks to you. So um uh... I, I did indeed give this talk at uh, Strata Hadoop in New York, and Bob was giving the keynote. I don't remember what it was called, something like crowdsourcing humor. But he happened to mention that he has this data set of cartoons. And I was immediately intrigued, you know, as a computer scientist, as a data scientist, because of what I just said, that in movies and in uh, science fiction, you always have those robots and computers that can do anything on Earth. But when it comes to telling a joke or understanding a joke, just nothing. So, so I really wanted to see what they could do with this data set. So I basically cornered Bob, and he was super nice and super generous and agreed to let me play with the data. Um, so what we did, so the New Yorker cartoon caption contest, every week they publish a cartoon without a caption. 
and then invite people to basically submit their idea of a caption, of, of a punchline. They get something like 5,000 captions per week. And then there's an intern that reads throughout the entire 5,000 submissions and picks the top 10 funniest ones. And now, you know, I initially thought this would be a dream job. You sit down and read jokes the whole day. Uh, but then I talked to him and the guy describes his job as soul crushing. He said that after 200, nothing is funny anymore. He just wants to crawl under a table and die. So I said, uh, <laughs> really? So I said, you know, can we help this poor guy? Or can I build something that will rank those 5,000 captions from funny to not funny? And I, I'm not expecting to do anything perfect, right? The humor is complicated, but something that will reduce the guy's workload. Um, so that's pretty much what we did. So, so and, then, uh, so then uh, what, what ended up with what, uh, that collaboration? Is it something that uh, Bob is using in some form? Almost. So we're now combining it with some work by other people, like Drago Rider from Michigan and some people from Wisconsin, because they did some, you know, complementary stuff. Uh, so we're now trying to make one big system that will, like Drago did clustering, and those guys did a lot, a lot of user studies. So eventually, this intern is going to be in a much better place. So uh, now, so now uh, Bob Mankoff's life has changed in that uh, he still has to come up with the, uh, the select the captions but uh, uh, your tool and the tools of others have uh, have streamlined this process for him so the idea was that um no for every cartoon we had the intern picked the top 10 and the question i asked was if you read the list ranked according to my algorithm how far down the list do you need to go to be reasonably sure you got those top 10 of yours and Kind of, you know, do you need to read 80%, 20%? Do you need to read the top 10? And that's it. Uh, so we, I, I don't have to call it streamlined, but in experiments, we cut something like half of his workload. And if you're okay with really similar things, then he really doesn't need to read more than the first few hundreds. Wow. That, I mean, cutting someone's workload in half, that's amazing, right? So It's even more fun because now they're opening the submission to Twitter Nation. So they expect way more than 5,000 submissions. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it sounds to me that uh, basically you're working in AI, right? So you're you're basically, uh, earlier on, you described yourself as always being intrigued by by questions of, or or when people put limitations on what a computer can or cannot do. And Mm -hmm. now you're, now you gave uh, this example of, uh, your work with Bob Mankoff and the New Yorker on uh, basically helping helping someone creative pick select the caption for a cartoon, right? So, mm-hmm. so it seems like this is very much along uh, along the path to AI, right? So I think that my favorite questions are usually inspired by AI, and then I try to bring methods that were not in good old-fashioned AI, you know, like crowdsourcing for the humor thing and machine learning on top of it. Uh, I actually just submitted, well, we got a paper in some um, uh, about analogies. And analogies is, again, one of the holy grails of AI. And we're arguing in this paper that, you know, so, they've so done for, First of, of all, for uh, our for our uh, listeners who aren't familiar okay. with this topic, so describe uh, analogies. Oh, sorry. So here's the idea. We have, um, again, it all boils down to data at the end. So we have data from some website that's a bit like uh, like Kickstarter. Okay, where people submit their idea of an invention. And suppose you have this brilliant idea for removing ice from windshields. Guy spent seven years on the East Coast. That's a big problem. Um, so all of the 
metrics today for information retrieval. If you look for similar things in the data set, they'll give you stuff about uh, cars and windshields and ice. Uh, but what we want to do is look for things that are similar on an abstract level. Okay, So, for example, things that are similar but in the kitchen. How to remove uh, dough from your hands or I don't know, dirt from your cat. So kind of things that are very not similar if you look at the word distribution, but there is some structure that's shared between them. So are you May use, making sense? Uh, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's are you beginning to use deep learning? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Because yeah. what you're describing sounds like something that people in deep learning and recurrent neural nets would be doing, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So um, what uh, what specific other applications have are, have you been looking at? You mean for analogy or in general? Or just in general? Yeah, yeah. Mm, so let's so see. So in other words, in other words, are you? I, I imagine, you know, I mean, Israel, a startup nation. Do you, <laughs> do you interact with industry at all and get inspired by what they're doing and kind of come up with uh, techniques to help their applications? Uh, you have no idea how right you are about Israel being startup nation, okay? The other day I went to get a haircut <laughs> and my barber was telling me about how he has this data-intensive startup. <laughs> Seriously, ask me if I want to submit a CV to be like his chief data scientist. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but sure. I actually think it's really, really important to, you know, keep in touch with the industry and hear about the problems they're facing. Because, you know, one of the dangers of academia is that you end up as the world's leading expert on somebody that nothing cares about, uh, which, you know, some I don't people think, might... I, I don't think that's a danger for you because you're, you're naturally curious and also the types of things you're interested in. Seem, bro <laughs> seem broadly applicable, right? Yeah, but, but you know, one of the things I loved the most about Stanford was how every week some random company would knock on our door just with buckets and buckets of data and like, here, take it, do something. There, there was a car company that gave us a car basically saying, well, uh, it has sensors, sensors is data, right? Do something fun. So do you uh, uh, generally think that... Uh, it seems like many of the things that we're talking about now in, uh, in terms of the techniques, they rely, mm -hmm. on, they rely on a lot of data. Mm -hmm. So one of, yeah. the one of the things that I'm hoping for is for people like you in academia or, uh, to come up with techniques that are less data intensive, if you know what I mean, right? So, if, mm -hmm. so for example, humans, we can uh, come up with analogies and learn patterns probably with much less data, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... I know what you're talking about. This would be insanely awesome. But so far, as long as I actually have enough data for what I need, and you know, with things like Mechanical Turk, I can always, even for the humor project with Bob, we just got like 100,000 judgments on humor, just like that. Um, so I'm not actually working on uh, trying to reduce the amount of data, but I'm really happy that uh, somebody else is. But, uh, but uh, on the other hand, you're also. it seems to me that you're also kind of interested in things that... Uh, um, where you might have one, where you might have data in one setting, and mm -hmm. then you'll use some kind of transfer learning to apply it oh, yes. in another setting, right? Yeah, I almost did my PhD in transfer learning. I still think it's one of the best problems out there. Yeah, it it, it seems like a lot more people are paying attention to that, right? And also, kind of, uh, I guess that area of semi-supervised, where you have some labeled data, and mm -hmm. then and then you try to make do with the little amount of labeled data you have. It's funny you're talking about, we just had a paper, a student of mine and I, about um, suppose you have no label data whatsoever, but somebody's giving you some really, really rough proportions, like, you know, um, 
there are more uh, Republicans than Democrats in Alabama. Can you actually go back and try to learn individual labels? And turns out you can actually learn individual labels way better than I expected you to be able to. So, yeah, so some weak signals are actually true. And, you know, it has some interesting applications to, you know, implications to privacy. Because when people release sensitive information in aggregate, you know, it might be traced back to individual people at the end. So I actually, I also like the fact that you you just work on problems, broadly speaking, and don't get too hung up on the technique, right? So because a lot of people, I <laughs> think, they talk only about deep learning and what can I do with deep learning and how can I apply it? Uh, and it seems to me that actually the right way to think about these things is that there's always going to be a mixture of things that you're going to use, right? So there's always going to be an ensemble of one form or another. Yeah, and, and you know, all kinds of tools that I never thought would be useful to me show up in unexpected places. Like for Metro Maps, I actually use them. Something I learned in graph theory in undergrad, you know, that I was not related to anything, but it just made sense. So I'm open to persuasion about tools. So let's close by uh, having you speculate. You kind of opened the door here for me to ask you this question. Because you, you said you said one of the things that you find you like to work on are the things that uh, where people place limitations on what a computer can or can't do. So mm-hmm. so let's say just in the short term, like next five years, what are some of the things you think uh, will be surprising to us now that computers will be able to do? Oh, by five years, I can't even plan Nostradamus and be really vague about us. <laughs> <laughs> How about this? I, I don't really like to make that kind of prediction, but how about I tell you what I think should happen instead? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay so I think you know reinforcement learning is a good example of what I have in mind because you know how it's suddenly hot again and they have you know they yeah, beat world like, champions uh, at Go it, and everything. It just come, came back big time, right? Exactly. Because of, because of mm-hmm. DeepMind, right? So. Mm-hmm. so. So I think that in general there are kind of you know three factors that held AI back or keep holding AI back. It's a, you know, the general suspects, the computer power in, a, in our infrastructure. And then there's algorithms and data. But I, I was just recently by a talk by the AlphaGo people. And it was really surprising to me because they attributed most of their success not to, you know, brilliant new ideas. They said that ideas are old ones, like uh, Monte Carlo tree search. Uh, but what was really, really the thing that drove the success is the data and the infrastructure. So, so I would really love to see people going back to other ideas in AI. You know how smart people spend their entire careers thinking about stuff, and it seems kind of stupid to you know ignore everybody's insights and say, "Hey, we threw deep learning on top of it." So, I oh, well, I mean, it so you're not. It's not, so you're not referring to kind of the old rule-based. Uh... No, no, God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm saying, like, for the analogy project I told you about, I actually went back and read some papers from uh, from before I was born, basically. And I don't know, I think it would be really, really awesome to see how you throw learning tools on top of those old ideas that are kind of, you know, collecting dust right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in many ways, right? So the one of the bread and butter tools that people use, stochastic gradient descent, you, I mean, that's old, right? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Awesome. So um, what we need is for you then to come up with a metro map to help us go through the AI <laughs> AI from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. All of the papers create a metro map, and then we can uh, we can save time and read the papers using the metro map. I'm on it. <laughs> well, well, this has been great. So I also want to emphasize to the listeners out there, 
I'm going to place uh, some links to uh, Daphne's work on Metro Maps, mainly because uh, we want uh, people out there to start working on it and implementing it in, in uh, frameworks like Apache Spark. So uh, many more people can enjoy uh, the, the work of Daphne and our collaborators. Before we jump into the conversation between O'Reilly Radar's Jen Webb and Princeton University Sam Wong, I just want to remind you that we have now over 80 free reports on many topics in data science, big data, and AI. Go to O'Reilly.com slash data slash free for a complete list. So now we turn to a fascinating conversation about the upcoming election between Chen Webb and Sam Wong. Thank you for joining me today, Sam. Oh, a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with a bit about you. Get into your background a little bit and what you're up to now. Oh, well, let's see. So I'm a neuroscientist at Princeton University. I've been here since 2000. Uh, my original background's in physics, and I, I made a transition from physics into neuroscience when I saw that that was where a lot of the good problems were. And, uh, and since then, I've worked on all kinds of problems in neuroscience and also in, uh, in actually politics, oddly enough, because the statistical tools are kind of similar. Right, right. You mentioned the politics, so we'll start we'll start with that before we get into the neuroscience and the brain research. Um, one of your very topical projects is the Princeton Election Consortium. Can you give us an overview of that project and how your prediction algorithms work? Sure. So as I said, uh, I run a neuroscience research laboratory and we do a lot of reasonably advanced signal processing where we have to extract noise from uh, extract sorry, signal from noisy individual observations. And that's a pretty standard thing that people have to do in uh, experimental sciences. So the Princeton Election Consortium is basically my effort to turn that into getting a really clear view of the presidential race and also down ticket races. Uh, and so what we do at the site is we collect publicly available polls. Uh, this is a, a website that's at election.princeton.edu. Um, we take those uh, polls and then feed them into a, a script that uh, I've written and scripts that my students have written. And uh, on an automated basis, we take those polling data and we turn the polling data into a clear, sharp snapshot of exactly where the presidential race appears to be at any given moment on any day during the campaign. And so it's sort of a tracking index that says what would happen in an election today. And we do it using um, what I would call optimal statistical tools. And how does your technique differ from other prediction sites like 538? Yeah, so my site started in 2004 uh, during the Kerry versus Bush campaign, and that was a really close race where the lead switched uh, several times. Right. And when I uh, when I started doing it, uh, there were just a few people doing it, a few hobbyists. There's a computer scientist in the Netherlands named Andrew Tannenbaum who uh, just served up polling data on a map and a, an automated feed. So that was the way he did it. And there were other hobbyists who did it too. So, um, so here's what we do. We, um, the Princeton Election Consortium is open source. And so anybody can download the scripts. They're written in MATLAB and in Python. Uh, and there's some shell scripts. And so anybody can download the stuff and run it for themselves. Uh, you know, they have to have MATLAB. So that, you know, is something that they need to be able to, to run. Um, we try to keep it simple. So, uh, over at 538, there's a very technical approach that I think, uh, I'm not really sure. I don't know much about it, but I, I think that it's sort of an econometric approach where what they're attempting to do, it seems, is adjust every data point uh, one by one and try to get each data point as well adjusted as they, as they can and then put them all together into a single snapshot. So what we do is something that doesn't require those adjustments. And really, anybody who reads uh, 
the Princeton Election Consortium could do it. We take all the available state polls for uh, for a given state, say Virginia, for example, which is a competitive state, and we take the median margin for that state between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the median margin uh, of all the polls, and that gives the best estimate of what the likely margin is going to be in the election. And then we use the spread in that uh, in that set of data to figure out how probable it is that Hillary Clinton uh, or Donald Trump is in the lead. Hmm. So that's one probability. And then we do that over and over again for all 51 races, the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. And we do it over and over again. And so in each case, there's an outcome that's uh, it's like a coin toss, except the, the coin is, you know, the coin toss is worth some number of electoral votes. And then combine all those probabilities using just some simple math trick, uh, a, a function in MATLAB that's called convolve. But anyway, we take turn all those probabilities into an exact distribution uh, that has lots of sharp peaks in it corresponding to particular combinations of states. And it's anywhere from zero to 538 electoral votes for Hillary Clinton and the same for Donald Trump. So all that's done automatically. Uh, and then that tells us how conditions are today. And then on top of that, we um, add some assumptions about where things are likely to go by election day. And that's uh, a random drift factor. And that random drift factor um, gives us a view of what is likely to happen on November 8th. Interesting. So we, yeah, okay, so we do ahead. that. Yeah, so we do that. And um, and there's more stuff to talk about, uh, about how to sharpen the prediction and make it as accurate as possible. Uh, and uh, and there's also down ticket stuff in the Senate and House that we also do. Right. And so this you noted that you started this in 2004. Um, so this is what your fourth U.S. presidential election, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. And so was this one more difficult to predict? No, the huge irony is that the hardest one to predict of all was 2004, when John Kerry was in the lead at one point, and then George W. Bush was in a, at another point. And in the home stretch, it all came down to one state, which if, if the state of Ohio had flipped the other way, then in fact, John Kerry would have become president. Oh. And so that was actually a tough race to predict. Um, it is an irony that uh, that the whole poll aggregation business that, that's been made so famous, you know, mainly by Nate Silver, um, it has really become famous during a period when races have become less suspenseful. And there's two reasons for that. One is that uh, in, the, in the two races since then, 2008, 2012, and now this year, um, the le races have become more stable. There's something that's made races more stable generally in the last 20 years. And we've, we're now in the third election in a row when things are relatively stable by historical standards. And so Hillary Clinton's been uh, in the lead for the entire season, um, as measured by my state polling snapshot. And, uh, and her lead has gotten smaller or larger, but she has always been in the lead. And this is the first time that an open presidential race uh, where there's no sitting president running for a reelection. Um, this is the first time that an open presidential race has been like this since Eisenhower was first elected in 1952. So, so you know, from a statistical standpoint, it is a really calm, um, I wouldn't say boring. Uh, nobody could call this race boring. <laughs> but, uh, but it's been a really steady race, statistically speaking, uh, because of how stable public opinion has become in the last 20 years. Right. And so th this next little bit that we talk about here won't be um, evergreen. So I apologize to the future, future people who've already endured the reality of this. But um, <laughs> so as of this morning, you've got Clinton's probability of winning at 95 percent random drift and 97 percent Bayesian. Um, so first of all, the difference between those, the random drift is the prediction of what's going to happen. 
and the no. Bayesian is okay. Go ahead. Yeah, tell me uh, the difference between those interrupt. two. Yeah, no, so, no. So, so the Bayesian is uh, my best estimate of what is going to happen. So this is here's how to unpack this. So I I went through this big song and dance with you about how we come up with a snapshot. What we do with that is convert it to a prediction, and the way to convert it to a prediction is to first convert that uh, electoral outcome into a a margin. So it's not, uh, it's, it's, I call it a meta margin. So it's how much the polls would have to shift in either direction in order to make the, uh, the election a perfect toss up where we would have no idea what would happen in either direction. So first we convert it to a meta margin. Then the question is, well, how much could opinion move? And so random drift refers to the idea that, well, opinion could move in either direction. And, uh, and so if it could move in either direction and, and, and we have no idea what, then there's a 95% probability as of today, which is October 12th, that Hillary Clinton would still be in the lead on election day. Now, the Bayesian thing is my best attempt to use the, the polls, the same polls that I used to take the snapshot, except now I use those same polls to figure out uh, what's, where, where the drift is likely to go. And the assumption that I put in here is something that's worked pretty well for the last three elections. Uh, it's actually worked even uh, pretty well all the way back to Eisenhower, if you look carefully at the data which is that in any given moment in time, we have a pretty good idea of where opinion is likely to go because opinion's been measured since the begin beginning of the year in polls. And so there's a range over which people are likely to, to have, uh, change their minds. Um, and that range is what uh, I said is the likely range, and that's called a Bayesian prior. And so the idea is that that's the likely range of where things are going to be. So sure, opinion could drift, but it's more likely to be in that range than to go outside that range. And so what the Bayesian probability here is taking into account the fact that we already know a lot about where people have mentally been since the beginning of the year. And once we put that in, uh, since people have been, um, on average, the electoral mechanisms have favored Hillary Clinton and not Donald Trump, that improves her win probability a little bit to 97%. Now, we're pretty late in the season now. It's, it's less than four weeks uh, to the election. And so at this point, random drift is really going to become the most important factor here, because there's just not enough time for people's opinions to change very much. And so uh, and so at this point, the random drift probability and the Bayesian probability are, are going to get closer and closer to each other. Right. And so how you, you sound like you're very, very confident in this prediction. What what would have to happen to turn it on its head for Trump to win? What would have to happen for Donald Trump to win the presidency? <laughs> uh I just want to sleep better at night. <laughs> OK, OK. So you, so you don't want me to like you don't want apocalyptic language about like, you know, the sky's turning red or something. Right. Like that. Okay. Right. So so in terms of numbers, what it would take to happen is that if you take undecided voters plus Gary Johnson and Jill Stein voters, that adds up to about 10 percent. Um, the reason that opinion has been so immovable in the last 20 years is uh, appears to be what uh, what political scientists call polarization, where people get really set and they really become committed to their party and against the other party. And that's been true for uh, ever since Clinton's reelection in 1996. And so people are not very movable. And this election being so uh, volatile emotionally has the ironic effect of making opinion stable, because if you feel very strongly emotionally, uh, which a lot of people in the U.S. do right now about the presidential race, then your opinion is not likely to change. And so what that means is that what it probably comes down to is what undecided voters are going to do, what Gary Johnson supporters will do and what Jill Stein supporters will do. Usually minor party candidates lose support in the home stretch. So most of those Gary Johnson and Jill Stein supporters are going to eventually choose up sides. Uh, you know, they're probably going to choose whichever candidate they like less. So if they like Hillary Clinton less, then they'll vote for Trump. If they like Donald Trump less, then they'll vote for Hillary Clinton. So 
there's about 10% of people undecided right now, or Johnson and Stein supporters. Uh, my estimate is that they would have to break about, um, let me see, they would have to break about uh, five to one uh, in favor of Donald Trump for Trump to have a chance at winning the presidency. So that's approximately what it would take. And have we ever seen anything like that in history? <laughs> that would be unusual. Okay. It, would, it, would, it would not be common for undecided voters to break so heavily for one candidate or the other. A fairly typical thing for undecided voters to do is to split approximately down the middle. So a five to one split is pretty unlikely. Now, there are other possibilities. So, for instance, uh, opinion could move a little bit towards Trump and then the undecided voters wouldn't then would not have to break quite as much. Right. So, for instance, if, if you know, even though people are polarized and set in their opinions, uh, the race is only within five to seven percentage points right now. Mm -hmm. And so if a couple of percent, you know, if one or two percent of voters uh, swung back towards Trump uh, of the of the ones who report a preference to pollsters, then undecided voters would only have to break, you know, say two to one in his favor. Uh, but, you know, it's an uphill climb for him. I, I think it would be, um, you know, the, the probability on on election.princeton.edu is currently listed at 97%. And I think that captures pretty well the, the uncertainties. Right. And so to segue a little bit back into the neuroscience and the brain research, um, there's been a lot of talk about how we arrived where we are in this election. And one phenomenon that I came across in your book, Welcome to Your Brain, struck me as appropriate, the source amnesia. Can oh, yeah. You, can you talk a little bit about source amnesia and the role that it's playing in, in political campaigns and, and in everyday life? Yeah. So um, it turns out that there uh, at this year's political campaign and political campaigns in general are rich fodder for uh, probing how the brain works. Uh, as you say, um, source amnesia, another example of, uh, of the neuroscience and the cognitive science of voting is uh, undecided voters. How undecided are they? Are they? So there's all kinds of things that one can bring up. But, but in the domain of source amnesia, uh, I wrote about this with my book co-author, Sandra Amet, um, gosh, back during Barack Obama's first term, um, as actually before he became president. In the summer of 2008, Sandra and I wrote a piece in The New York Times uh, with the title, I think the title was How Lies Live and Grow in the Brain. And people are welcome to look this up. Uh, basically, we were trying to figure out why is it that so many people seem to, it was something like 20% of people at the time, believed that Barack Obama was not born in Hawaii, where he was born, but in Kenya. And so the idea being here that what is now called the birther movement of people who doubt the birthplace of, uh, of an American who, uh, who was the favorite to become president. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, one thing is that we live in a complex media environment where there are pretty credible sources that get fact-checked, uh, which involves places like NPR or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And then we have other sources that seem to be only loosely fact-checked or not fact-checked at all, like, uh, you know, Breitbart or, uh, you know, honestly, Fox News has a lot of things on it that aren't really true. Um, <laughs> and, well, you know, that's just, yeah. that is the case. Uh, I mean, they, you know, a lot of things they say are true, but a lot of things they say seem to not be true. Um, and so in a mixed media environment where there's all kinds of information coming at us, uh, it is really hard for people to remember where they heard a thing. And it's quite common for people to say things like, well... I heard X and then are, you know, they're unable to remember where they heard it. So for instance, I, I don't know, um, what's the capital of France? Paris. Okay. Where were you when you learned that fact? No clue. Okay. So, right. So that's good. If, if you had remembered, I would have been really <laughs> would... shocked. That, that, that would have been amazing. Um, so what happens is that when the brain acquires information, it sorts out the information from the context 
and uh, and basically discards the context and then keeps the information. And we do this all the time. It's it's a normal memory mechanism. But one consequence of that is that we will remember. Oh, I think I heard that. I think that I heard that uh, Hillary Clinton um, gave away secrets to the Russians in her email, or 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 the Hillary Clinton likes peanut butter and bologna sandwiches, or or, or whatever it might be. And and I think I saw that in the New York Times. Yeah, that's it. I saw it in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or what have you. Um, and so it's possible to remember a piece of information separately from the context in which we heard it. And so that's, you know, that's a, a, what psychologists call a cognitive bias, where we, we forget whether a piece of information is credible. And then there's uh, phenomena like biased assimilation, where we, um, where we are more likely to accept a piece of information if it agrees with our prior views. And this actually gets back to the Bayesian thing you were asking about. So Bayesian inference is a thing that I do statistically for election prediction, but Bayesian inference is something we all do in everyday life because we have to make sense of the world around us. So uh, to pick the example of Barack Obama's birthplace, um, if your prior view is that that you don't like Barack Obama or that in your previous experience, only white guys become president, then this person, Obama, shows up and, you know, he doesn't look like those other presidents. And so something's wrong. And so if you have some bias, even if it's not an, a conscious bias, if something seems off to you or it seems disagreeable to you that, that Obama would become president, then maybe you might become receptive to the idea that he was not born in the U.S. Um, and so, in fact, if you look at the, the demographics of birther belief, uh, birther belief is, is predominantly among Republican voters. Uh, very few Democratic voters believe this and, uh, and you know, also a, a relatively small number of independent voters. And so for some reason, you know, it's not like Republicans are dumber than Democrats. There's, but there's something about Republicans where they have some prior set of beliefs that leads them to be receptive to the idea that, that Obama was born outside the U.S. And, you know, and, 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 you know, in that context, it's just a cognitive bias that we have. And, and, and we see it uh, in the particular case of that. And so I think that um, getting back to the general subject of mass media and also, you know, narrow cast media, we have all kinds of sources of information available to us now. Facebook, Twitter, uh, news feeds, talk radio, email. And we have all these channels of information. And it's really super hard uh, for any individual to really cut through all that clutter and get accurate information, even if some of those channels of information are high quality. So um, so I, I think that actually these cognitive biases make it super tough for citizens to to really get by in, uh, in what should be a golden age of information. You can follow Sam Wong on Twitter at Sam Wong PhD. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.